Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Well, honestly, y'all, I, um, I, have a, a, I have two boys, uh, 13 and 14, um, and I'm used to being under attack. Um, it's a part of my uh, normal, normal life. It's really good to be here. Um, I've known Brandon for uh, several years now, gotten to interact with him through the network of churches, and uh, so I'm just thankful to have the opportunity to be with you this morning and share out of God's Word. If you have a copy of the Scriptures with you, and I hope you do, uh, you can t- go ahead and turn with me to Psalm 42. That's where we're going to be this morning as we walk through uh, the experience of the psalmist um, in a broken and hard and, and sinful world. Uh, I had the chance back in the early 2000s to um, lead multiple mission trips to Chiang Mai, Thailand. And on one of those trips, we had the chance to serve uh, in a leper colony that actually still exists in Chiang Mai, Thailand. Honestly, y'all, I I didn't know much about leprosy. I only really knew what I'd read in the Bible. And uh, so my expectation was that I was going to encounter people with really serious skin issues and problems. And uh, I just expected to see a lot of that. But what was most surprising to me was that most of the people in the leper colony had very normal-looking skin. Actually, had very beautiful uh, complexions. But what they, what most of them uh, did have were uh, missing uh, fingers and toes and, in some cases, entire limbs. I, I was completely unprepared for that. I didn't understand what the correlation between that and leprosy was. Well, what I learned was that leprosy is much more than a skin disease. It actually affects the peripheral nerve endings and causes a loss of feeling. Well, you can imagine what happens when you have a loss of feeling in your peripheral nerve endings. You experience injury, and because you're unaware that you've been injured, you don't do anything about it, so infection sets in. And then ultimately, uh, limbs, toes, fingers have to be amputated. I hadn't really given it much thought up until that point, but suddenly I realized that being able to feel pain when you're injured is a good thing. It's a good thing because pain leads me to pay attention to where I'm hurting and seek healing, not just relief. Did you know that that is true spiritually and emotionally? Feelings are like the warning lights on our cars, okay? I I, I don't know. I'm I'm married. My wife doesn't seem to think that those are big issues. The light goes off, and a month later, I get in her van, and I say, "Um, how long has this been? I don't know. It came on two or three years ago. Actually, those, those things are there. To, to tell us that there might possibly be a problem. And the objective is not just to make the light go out. The objective is to figure out what the issue is and deal with it. Feelings don't need to be ignored. They really should be investigated. 
They don't need to be covered or masked because our feelings are, are telling, telling us something. They're, they're telling us that something needs attention, and it's an attempt to move us to action. To, today, what we're going to talk about as we walk through Psalm 42 is uh, what are you and I are supposed to do in seasons when we feel spiritually depressed? When, when there's darkness, when there's pain, when there is confusion, what are you and I supposed to do? Now, I, I want to say this. I know that depression is a complicated thing. Somebody in the room may actually struggle with this in very deep ways. And, and I'm not suggesting that all depression is spiritually or even primarily spiritual in nature. But I am talking about those seasons when you haven't lost your faith in God. You haven't lost your commitment to Him, but you just can't seem to feel God. You don't hear Him speaking. You don't know what He's doing. You feel confused. He feels distant. You feel spiritually cold and hard and dark. Psalm 42 is a haunting picture of what it feels like to struggle spiritually. But it's, it's not just a description. It also, I think, gives us a prescription. So I want, us to, want you to join me in Psalm 42, and let's walk through this this morning. And we're going to consider two things. First, what does spiritual drought and depression and darkness feel like? How do you identify that? And the second thing is... What are we supposed to do about it? What's our best practice when we approach this, when we're in it, when we're anticipating it? What should we do in seasons like this? All right, let's start with this. What spiritual drought, darkness, and depression feel like? Let's just walk through the psalm, okay? Join me. Verse 1. As the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When, when can I go and meet with God? Anybody in the room ever sung the little song? As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. Okay, completely wrong idea. Completely wrong idea. Really sweet and tender, but that's not the picture here of the psalmist in Psalm 42. This is not a precious little deer in a peaceful green meadow sauntering up to a babbling brook to lap up cool, refreshing water on a warm summer day, okay? The picture here is a deer on the run, frantic, desperate, running for his life, dying of thirst, and unable to find a stream to drink from. It's intense and frantic search for water. The, the psalmist is distressed and desperate for God, but he can't seem to find him. He doesn't even know when he's going to be able to meet with When can I go and meet with God? It's this urgent, desperate kind of longing for something he's not experiencing. Look at verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where, where is your God? He can't, he can't stop crying, crying day and night. Have you, have you ever been there? Have you ever been in the season where the tears just come for sometimes feeling like no reason at all? And it seems like he's not eating because he says, my food, my only food has been my tears. And you see from these verses that the outside world is, is looking in. They notice that things are bad for him. And so they ask him, where, where's your God? 
It, it looks to them as though he's been abandoned by God. It's not just an internal struggle. It's pretty obvious to everybody around him that things are amiss. Verse 5. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? My soul is down, downcast within me. Listen, he's in the depths. It feels like a never-ending downward spiral. He's downcast and depressed. He acknowledges that to himself. Verse 7, deep calls to deep. In the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. Listen, he's overwhelmed. He's absolutely overwhelmed. It feels like he's drowning, just gasping for air. The storm has really become too, too much for him. And he's wondering, why isn't God calming the wind and the waves? Surely he could do that, right? Surely he's the God who's the Lord of the wind and the waves who could say to them, peace be still. But it's not happening. Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Listen, he feels forgotten. He feels like he's left defenseless. He has no protection as his enemies oppress him. It seems like God isn't doing anything about his situation. Verse 10, my bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? It's not just an internal struggle. There's a physical component to this. He's suffering physically from what feels like to him like a fatal disease. And, and here again, his enemies, his foes add insult to in, injury, claiming that all of this is evidence that God has abandoned him. Y'all, that's rough. It's hard, it's painful. It's painful to even read that and think deeply about what it means. But, but you know what? This is not an uncommon experience for the people of God. For, for some of you, it's possible that this morning, this all sounds way too familiar. It, it feels like your reality and it's hard to stand in a place like this and sing, hope has a name, his name is Jesus. And I have victory in him because everything around you, everything inside of you, everything you're experiencing feels much less, much more like defeat than it does like victory. But it's not an uncommon experience. Surely you remember David on the run from Absalom. Surely you remember Job. Surely you remember Jeremiah the prophet. Surely you remember Paul. Listen, the scriptures are littered with men and women who experienced this kind of season of darkness and hardship and pain and suffering and wondering, how long, O oh Lord, how long? Listen, if you're not there... Here's the truth. There will be times of darkness. There will be seasons of drought. There will be loss and grief and times of deep hurt and feelings of depression. If you haven't been there, guess what? You will be. It's coming. These things are inevitable in a sinful and broken world. Trust me, nobody in the room is exempt from this. But this psalm, this psalm teaches us what to do. 
I think embedded in this psalm are seven ways that you and I should respond. Seven ways that we should encourage each other as we walk together. Y'all, as the body of Christ, one person. So what does the scripture say? We mourn with those who mourn and we rejoice with those who rejoice. We walk through these seasons together and we help each other do the work of persevering and clinging to hope in hard seasons. All right? So I'm going to give you seven things. I'd love for you to jot these down. I think this is a good practice for you. I believe that you and I are accountable for what we hear from God's Word. We aren't just an accountable to apply it. We're, we're accountable as the people of God to search the Scriptures and know if the truth has been preached to us. So I'd love for you to write these down this morning and interact with them as we walk together. All right, what should we do in seasons of spiritual darkness, drought, and depression? Well, number one... We need to refine our desires. Refine your desires. Look at verse 1. As the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? Listen to what he says. My soul thirsts for God. In seasons of want, listen to me, brothers and sisters, you have to clarify your longings. What you think you want or need and what your soul really longs for may not be the same thing. In fact, I think it's probably safe for me to say that they aren't the same thing. Can we be honest this morning? I'm allergic to pain. I have an intolerance for difficulty. I'm pretty sure I was created for comfort and luxury. I'm attracted to abundance and pleasure and peace. I, I want to be strong and sufficient. Anybody else in the room resonate with that? That's, that's really what we want. But you know what? The, truthfully, what I want, truthfully, what I think I want is a life that is free of the need for God. But that's not what I was created for. I was created to know and love and depend on and rely on God. I was created for dependence, not independence. But if I don't tell myself the truth about what my soul really longs for, then y'all, I'm going to devise schemes that attempt to get for myself the idols that promise fulfillment but never deliver. I don't, I don't know you personally, but here's what I know. Some of you in the room this morning are running so hard after stuff and things and experiences and status and success and image and relationships and approval. And, and most of you should know by now from the trail of disappointment and dissatisfaction behind you that none of that will ever satisfy you. What you really need is to be with Jesus because in his presence is fullness of joy and as it, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let me say one thing before I move on to the next point and that's this. To refine your desires doesn't just mean articulating a noble desire. It doesn't just mean saying the right thing. By definition, refining is the exposure and removal of every impurity. And you know how that happens? Fire. 
the heat causes the impurities to rise to the top and then they're discarded. Listen, the fiery trial that you're experiencing isn't intended to destroy you, but to test and prove and purify your heart. You can't have a pure desire for God alongside every other desire. Love for the things of the world and love for Jesus, y'all can't coexist. They can't coexist in our, our heart. So what do you and I have to do? We have to fix our eyes on him. We have to turn our hearts toward him. We have to be in the process of refining our desires. All right, number two, the second thing you and I have to do is we have to remember the presence of God. Remember the presence of God. Look at verse 4. These things I remember, the psalmist said, as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. What's he doing here? The psalmist is calling to mind times when he gathered with the people of God and experienced the protection of God, when he enjoyed being with God. These aren't just general memories of going to church, right? Okay, some of you have those. You grew up going to church. and You have general ideas, general memories. That's not what he's talking about here. He's calling up specific encounters, remembrances of encounters with God at the temple. Listen, he's not forgotten when, when God showed up, when God spoke, when he moved in power. He has vivid memories of the manifest presence of God among the people of God. And listen, those are critical in seasons of darkness. Uh, Dwayne, Dwayne told you, I, I've been on the same church staff for 36 years this summer. 36 years on the same church staff. And y'all, there are some moments that are etched in my memory that I saw God move. I, I've watched God heal. I've heard him speak. For 25 years, I, I led worship. And I led worship primarily through a choir. And I will never forget one Wednesday night choir practice. A young um, UNC student who was deaf, named Covey Latham, was sitting in the back of our choir practice. She came. We had deaf interpreters at this time in our church. And she came to choir practice. Because she wanted to feel the music that we were learning so that she could sign it. And we were singing, and all of a sudden from the back row, she shrieks. I mean, literally screams and runs out the door. In an instant, her hearing had been restored. I will not forget the Easter Sunday. When I saw Joan Swain, another one of my choir members, I saw her in the first service on Easter Sunday with her unbelieving husband. Y'all, they'd been separated for 25 years. He had been living with another woman. And she had waited and prayed faithfully for him. And on this Easter Sunday morning, I watched them walk into the first service. That service was over and everybody dismissed. And I saw them standing in, in the back of the auditorium, and I wondered what was happening. So I kind of walked back that way in between service, and I was like, Jones, everything okay? And she goes, Tommy wants to stay again. He wants to hear the message again. Y'all, by the end of the morning, by the end of the morning, that man gave his life to Christ, and he was baptized on the spot. 
I won't forget that. I, I won't forget, I don't, I can't forget the first time I ever heard our pastor, Pastor J.D. Greer, say from the pulpit, the gospel isn't just the diving board off which we jump into Christianity, it's the pool itself. It, it was a moment of awakening. It was a moment that I, I suddenly understood that the gospel isn't just the beginning of the Christian life, it is the Christian life. To live in the gospel is to live the Christian life. You need to experience and recall moments like that because they remind us, y'all, they remind us that God shows up and God moves and God works and He speaks and He saves and He heals and He delivers. Listen, when we gather, when you gather, you should expect to experience God. We should be looking and, and listening for him, not just watching out for each other, not just being in the room and singing, but we should come in with this holy anticipation that the God of the universe is going to meet with us and show himself to us and speak to us and move among us. You should approach church attendance like it's the most important thing in your week other than your personal time with God. You, you need to prepare yourself. You need to show up regularly. And I'm about to give it a little ouch here. You need to show up on time. You need to get here early and be ready to go. There needs to be something about the way you approach this time that says, I'm expecting something to happen. Here, here's what I, this just baffles me, okay? I'm old man, so I'll just go off on you here, okay? Nobody shows up 15 minutes late for a movie. It doesn't happen. Now, you might try to skip the previews and get to when the movie starts. But can I just tell you that what happens on the stage here before Brandon gets, um, before Dwayne gets up to preach is not previews. It's not the same thing. It's the worship of the people of God. You should be here. You should be ready to go. You need to engage in worship. And you need to bring your Bible and notebook like you think God might actually say something to you that you don't want to forget. Y'all, you can't afford, we can't afford to be ambivalent or indifferent to the opportunities that we have to know God and celebrate Him alongside the people of God. Trust me, there's coming a day when you're going to need to know when and how God has met with you. All right, number three. Number three, verse five. Number three, repeat truth to yourself. Look at what he says. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Do you, do you see what's happening here? He's questioning himself. He's questioning himself. He's, he's, he's asking himself, why do I feel like this? Why, why do I feel this way? He's examining his feelings, and then he's speaking to his own soul. Surely you guys know by now that your feelings aren't always reliable, right? Y'all got this? You're aware of this? Anybody followed their feelings and found out, oh, I didn't, I didn't need to do that. That wasn't a great idea. Uh, most of you know, follow your heart. Just do what feels right is horrible advice. Don't say that to anybody. Your heart is deceitful and more desperately wicked than you know. Your feelings are real, but they may not be telling you the truth. They may very well need some attention and action, but it's probably not obedience that they need. Just think about what the psalmist felt was not true. Just think about this. He felt abandoned, but that wasn't true. 
The truth was that God was present and listening. He felt like he would be swept away and destroyed. But that wasn't true. The the truth was God was his rock. He felt like God was against him. That wasn't true. The truth was that God loved him and was for him. Listen, imagine what kind of mess he would have been in if he hadn't known the truth. This is one of the primary reasons that you and I need to spend regular time in God's Word. And I'm not talking about five minutes of casual reading in the morning. I'm talking about soaking in it. I'm talking about saturating yourself with it. I'm talking about filling your mind and your heart with the Word of God. I'm talking about meditating on it and memorizing it. I'm talking about getting it inside of you so that what comes up in you in seasons of hardship and difficulty is not the lies of the world, but the truth of the God of the ages. Listen, Satan is a liar. And he attacks your heart with lies about the character and the purposes of God. I want you to listen to me. Often those lies come in the form of feelings. And if you're going to be able to navigate those lies, you better be armed and ready to speak truth to yourself. The very word of God. That's why Paul would would charge the church to put on the full armor of God and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Listen, can I just tell you this? The problem with so many of us is that we're going into battle, daily into battle, without a weapon. We we don't have our sword with us. we're We're not gifted. We're not trained. We're not ready to use the Word of God. And listen, can I just tell you this? Like last night, I don't really want to own a gun, but I kind of wanted to own a gun for a minute. No, nobody goes into a battle. No soldier goes into a battle without a weapon. Right? That's suicide. It's stupid. It's foolish. And you and I, as followers of Jesus, need to be armed Not with the weapons of the world, not with weapons of flesh, but with the very Word of God. All right, number four. We reaffirm the sovereignty of God. Look at verse 7. He says, deep calls to deep. Listen to it. In the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. Don't, Don't miss this. He acknowledges that what is happening to him, listen to me, is under the sovereign rule of God. All your ways, your breakers have swept over me. He says, God, this is is from your hand. They're your waves and breakers. They're, They're subject to your command. They're not out of control. They're not on their own. You, God, are over these. They belong to you. The psalmist acknowledges that God is involved even in his troubles. Even in the storm, my brothers and sisters, God is still sovereign. The scripture repeatedly affirms this truth. I love Psalm 11, verses 3 and 4. It says, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? When it's all falling apart, when everything is crumbling, when the building is caving in, 
what can the righteous do? There's not an action given, there's a knowing. Verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. Do you catch that? What's essential when everything is caving in around us and the world seems to be falling apart? What's essential, what's necessary is our awareness that our good God is still seated in the place of all authority and power on his throne in heaven. The sovereignty of God, listen to me, the sovereignty of God is a glorious doctrine that should bring us immeasurable hope and peace. Don't dare let go of this. Don't dare let go of it. Don't let your confusion, don't let your inability to reconcile the sovereignty of God with the difficulty of your circumstances, don't let that rob you of the confidence that comes that no matter what happens to you, God is still in control. Even in chaos and pain and confusion, God's still firmly on the throne, faithfully working all things together for our good to conform you and me into the image of his son. And he will one day, Jude 1 to 24, present us before his glorious presence, faultless and with great joy. Listen to me. If he's not sovereign, if he's not sovereign, y'all, we don't have a shred of hope. And you and I need to reaffirm the sovereignty of God, even when we don't understand it. I said this last week, I was preaching somewhere else on a different subject. And I said, y'all, there's lots of things I don't understand, right? Anybody in the room besides me? Things I don't understand. There are some mathematical uh, equations and laws I do not understand, right? There's some science. There's lots of science I don't understand. I'm married. I don't understand how a woman thinks. There's lots of things I don't understand, but my lack of understanding doesn't make them not true. Right? I don't, I don't understand gravity. I don't understand how it works. I don't understand how it works here and how it doesn't work other places. But it doesn't make it not true because I don't understand it. Y'all, listen. Just because we can't reconcile in our finite mind the greatness of the sovereignty of God over everything that's happening in the world all at once for all of history and all of time eternity, just because we can't understand it doesn't make it not true. Y'all got to cling to things and believe and trust in the sovereignty of God. All right, number five, recall the love of God. Look at verse eight. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Y'all, this verse is the one bright spot in the whole depressing psalm. It's the one ray of hope. It's the one little glimmer of sunshine that's coming through. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Even in the midst of great darkness, battling depression and discouragement, he still recognizes the love of God directed toward him. At night, he sings of that love and turns that song into a prayer. Listen to me. You need to hang on to God's great love for you and there's no clearer demonstration of that than in the gospel. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's demonstration, look at me, God's demonstration this morning that he loves you is not your circumstance. 
His demonstration today that he loves you is Christ Jesus on the cross suffering for your transgression and your sin. No greater love hath any man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. Oh, your circumstances are not the measure of God's love for you. And here's why that's important. Because today, Christians in Ukraine, in Afghanistan, in North Korea, and India, and Iran, and Somalia, and Nigeria, all of them... All of them can be confident and sing of God's great love for them. They can pray knowing they are beloved children of God, even in the face of great persecution and in spite of their horrific circumstances. Can you do that? In the middle of your trouble, in your heartache, in your disappointment, in your pain, can you this morning be confident of God's great love for you? Or have you mistakenly tied the idea that God loves you to some set of circumstances that you think you need to be happy? God's measure, the measure of God's love for you is never your circumstance. Never. Listen to me. If that's the case, the vast majority of the world will never experience the love of God as you've defined it. The love of God is Christ Jesus on the cross. Listen to the writer of Lamentations. You know these verses? Lamentations 3. Pick up at verse 19. He says, I remember my affliction and my wondering, the bitterness and the gall. Listen, remember, he's not, he's not like calling up something in the distant past. He's saying, I'm aware of it. I'm calling it to mind. I'm aware of the bitterness and the gall, the affliction and the wondering. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Ah, listen, does that not echo the psalmist in Psalm 42? Downcast. I remember that. I'm very well well of that. I know that very well. How many of you this morning can describe your trouble? You're aware of it, right? You're not ambivalent to it. You're not unaware of it. You know what it is. But what does he say? I'm not dwelling there. I call, this, I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The writer of Lamentations, in the middle of bitterness and gall and being downcast, called to mind the great love of God for him and knew that that was why he was not destroyed. Can I tell you this morning that if God's intent in your present circumstance was to destroy you, you would already be destroyed. You would already be consumed. You would already be burnt up. The fact that God has preserved you and kept you by His grace and goodness in Christ Jesus, listen to me, that's your assurance that God is still working to show goodness and love to you. Listen, be aware of your affliction. Understand it. Don't ignore it. Don't shut off the feelings. But be more aware of a greater and more necessary reality. You've been loved with an everlasting love. And your Father has drawn you with loving kindness. All right, number six. Sixth thing we need to do. Remain in prayer. Remain in prayer. Look at verse 9. He says, I say to God my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about 
mourning, oppressed by the enemy. Y'all, I love this. He hasn't lost sight of who God is to him, and he has not stopped praying. Can I tell you this morning, God can handle your complaint. He can handle your questions. He already knows what they are anyway. Just because you stay silent doesn't mean God's, you know, like uh, our, our little kids who think if you can't see, if I can't see you, you can't see me. Right? God's aware. He knows what's in your heart. You might as well be honest with him. The psalmist is honest. Why have you forgotten me, God? Why? But he says, I say to God, my rock, listen, no matter how dark and depressing, he's still calling God his rock. He still identifies God as solid and reliable, the very foundation of his life. And he's asking questions. Why why have you forgotten me? Why, Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Listen, he's still pursuing relationship. He still wants to understand God's purposes in his current trouble. He still believes in God's activity in his life. Y'all, I'm absolutely amazed that at no point in this entire psalm does he ask God to change his circumstance. Not a single solitary time does he so much as breathe a word that leans towards asking God to change his circumstance. He doesn't cry out for God to silence or defeat his enemies. There is no request for the removal of physical suffering. His solitary plea is for the presence of God. Don't miss that. He wants God. He wants to be with God. He wants to know what God is up to. There's this element of trust in him. There's a belief. That what he is experiencing, God is using it. Listen, if God never changes your circumstances or brings relief for your suffering, but you get before him and know that he's heard your cry, that's enough. Because the primary purpose of prayer is not to get something from God, but rather to get to God. Can I say that again? The primary purpose of prayer is not to get something from God. The primary purpose of prayer, of engaging in dialogue with God, is to get to Him, to be with Him, to cultivate relationship with Him. And the more you and I need what uh, hang on. The more you and I need what God, more than you and I need what God can do for us, we need who God is. More than you need God's hands. You need his face. You don't just need his action. You need his heart. You need to be with him and know him. All right, number seven. The last thing I think this psalm teaches us to do is this. Reset your hope. Reset your hope. Look at verses 11. Look at verse 11. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why, why so disturbed within me? This is a repeat of an earlier verse. And then he says again to himself, put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. All right, look at me. By the time he gets to the end of this psalm, there's no resolution to his difficulty. There's no relief. There's no sudden change in his circumstance. But yet this psalm ends with a declaration of unrealized Put your hope in God, he says. 
for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. He doesn't seem to know when, but he expects that there is coming a day when he will praise the one who is his Savior and his God. He is choosing to set his hope on the promises of God. He deliberately chooses future hope instead of resigning himself to present despair. Can I tell you that in your trouble, you have that choice? You can either set your hope on a future, you can set your heart on a future hope. You can choose that instead of choosing present despair. I know that most of us want to believe that things will get better. And I hate to tell you this, but we don't have that guarantee. When uh, the pandemic started, March of 2020, there's only one way out of, my, out of my neighborhood, out to everything, at least out of the section where I live in. And at the stop sign, right there, as you're coming out of my neighborhood, somebody took a piece of plywood, and they painted a, a message on it, and they bolted it to the stop sign. They clearly meant for this thing to stay for a while. And on that sign, with all these pretty pastel colors and flowers and all this kind of stuff, they wrote, it will get better. It will get better. And y'all, I, for two years, I drove out by that sign. And I can't tell you how many mornings I thought to myself, maybe, maybe not. Maybe not in the way you expect. Maybe not in the way you hope. Maybe not in the way you thought. I wondered what they meant by it will get better. What their anticipation was. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, the sign disappeared. I don't know if the DMV took it down. I don't know if the person who put it up took it down. I don't know if they thought it had actually gotten better. I don't know if they gave up and just realized it's not going to get. I have no idea. The sign's gone. But listen to me. All of us live with that internal longing. We just want it to get better. We just want to get to peace. We just want things to be easy for a season, for a stretch, right? Anybody in the room besides me? Y'all are so quiet. Right? Does anybody, like you just, like I just, can we just have like a few months? Right? We want it to get better. We want it to get better for a long time. But nothing in scripture promises us earthly comfort and ease and pleasure. You know that, right? In fact, if you read the book, it pretty much tells us it's going from bad to worse. Jesus said himself, in this world you will have Comfort and ease and pleasure and joy and gladness and abundance and prosperity. Now, what did he say? In this world, you will have trouble. Trouble. You're going to have trouble. Here's an announcement. You're going to have trouble. Be blessed. But then he said this, but take heart. Have hope. I've overcome the world. The Word of God repeatedly tells us to set our minds on things above. To lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven and not on earth. Listen, y'all, I'm not called to put my hope in the temporary, but in the eternal. 
We have a greater hope that is beyond this life. That's why Paul, I think, expressed it this way in Philippians 1, 20 and 21. He said, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed. I'm not going to be ashamed. I'm not going to be made the fool. But I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Listen to me. That's eternal hope. And y'all, that kind of hope takes deliberate, intentional, daily, setting our minds and hearts on things above and not on earthly things. Listen, Paul didn't get to that magically. God didn't sprinkle Jesus dust on him and he just suddenly felt that way. Paul walked through great hardship and difficulty and he chose to believe the eternal good promises of God and set his hope on something greater than this earth. You can't say to live is Christ and to die is gain if your hope is all wrapped up in stuff and things and people and experiences. You have to cultivate that kind of hope. You have to make sure you haven't set your heart on the wrong thing. For many of us who struggle with disappointment and frustration, it is a clear indicator that we've set our hope on the wrong thing. I want to make one final observation before I wrap this up this morning. Go back to the beginning. The heading of this psalm tells us something that I think is very important about the significance of this psalm for the gathered church. Look at it. It says, for the director of music, a mascal of the sons of Korah. Y'all, these kinds of things in Scripture are incidental. They're there for a reason. Everything about this heading indicates that this psalm was written for use in public worship. All right? For the director of music. All right? I think that's pretty obvious. Anybody other than... Jordan, I don't know your wife's name. Alexa? Anybody other than Alexa have a resident director of music in their home? Okay. You got... You got one? I'm not talking about the person who chooses the Spotify playlist <laughs> or controls the, you know, the, the music playing in the house. Okay, obvious. Direct, for the director of music. A mascal, a mascal is a poem or a song for instruction. And of the sons of Korah, well, they were a group of priests whose ministry was singing in the temple worship. All right, here's why this is important, y'all. This psalm was intended not for private meditation, but for public worship. They sang this in the temple. They sang this when they got together. Excuse me, why? Why did they do that? Because it represented a common experience and not an isolated incident. Y'all, this is so important. Can I just plead with you? This is why you have to be real with each other. We, we live in a culture that prizes image management. You know that's what Facebook and Instagram are all about? It's about putting forth your, your best image. 
It's about making people think something about you. It's about putting forth an idea of who you are. I call it fake book. I look at pictures and I'm like, I've been to your house and it don't ever look like that. It is never that clean. Who do you think you're fooling? I mean, I watch these people post all these glorious, glorious posts about their children. How sweet they are and glorious and wonderful and obedient and kind. And how they, at three they're already devoted to the scriptures. I'm like, I know your children. Like, I don't know, I don't know where you're coming up with this. I watch what people post about their dinner. I'm like, I've been to eat at your house at least 25 times, and you have never served me anything that looked like that. (laughs) Listen to me. The people in this room, look at me this morning. The people in this room do not need to think you have it all together. That's not helpful to them. That's not helpful to them. They don't need to think you don't ever have any trouble and you don't ever fly off the handle and you don't ever lose it and you don't ever not know what to do. That's not helpful to them. Y'all, we need to be real with each other. We need to unpack the discouragement and difficulty and the hardship of life so that together we can attack it and call each other to set our hope on God. When you come in here, you need to sing things that point you to Jesus. Y'all, what we experience is common That's why the scripture says no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape so that you can stand up under it. Can I just tell you something this morning? Some of you have experienced temptation and seen the deliverance of God, and you need to talk about that because somebody who's encountering that same temptation needs to learn from you what the way out is. There are some people in this room who feel oppressed and they need to know that somebody else has had that same experience and it's not just them. You do know that the enemy will lie to you and tell you that what's happening to you is your fault and you're significantly messed up more than everybody else in the church. And y'all, that's a lie. Hardship and difficulty and pain and suffering and darkness and depression and doubt are common. And we've got to get to the place where we get over ourselves enough to realize we're supposed to be helping each other deal with this. Can I just tell you this? Like I have my, my 14-year-old, Lord Jesus help him. So night before last, he rails at his brother. He says something mean and ugly to him that he couldn't say. And so we begin to deal with that. And then he says to us, and this, y'all, this happens so much, I can't even count it on all my fingers and toes with exponents. You know, well, he did such and such, and you didn't do anything about that. I said, I didn't know it. I didn't know it. I can't deal with things I don't know about. If you're going to react to him hitting you with the remote, and I don't see it, you have to tell me he hit you with the remote, Okay. I'm not omnipresent, omniscient, I'm not clairvoyant. I don't know everything that happens. Listen, y'all, we've got to talk about stuff with each other so we can help each other. Some of y'all are upset because nobody's helping you, but nobody knows you got any trouble. Nobody knows there's any doubt. As far as they know, you got the world by the string, the tail, the kite, whatever the phrase is. (laughs) No, we got to walk through this stuff together we got to stir up faith 
and hope in one another. It's why you got to sing songs like you sang this morning. Hope has a name. His name is Jesus. Listen, I don't care how good you sing. You need to sing it because the person seated next to you is still trying to figure out if they have any hope this morning. And they need somebody in the room to say to them, hope has a name. His name is Jesus. In Christ, I have the victory. Don't fake it with them. Y'all, that's why for, for centuries the church has sung this kind of song. You know this when darkness seems to hide his face? I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way. When sorrows, like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Those aren't joyful songs. Those aren't happy-go-lucky songs. They aren't dancing and shouting songs. They are songs that call us to recognize the reality of difficulty and hardship and pain and suffering and darkness and drought and depression and say, I'm setting my hope in a place that is not in this world. Church, we've got to do the work of encouraging each other to find hope in God. It's a fight, but it's a fight worth having. Can we pray together? God, I'm thankful this morning that not a single solitary part of what we experience is outside your careful, watchful eye. God, I'm thankful that you told us things in your word. Like you are working everything together for our good to conform us to the image of your son. I'm, I'm thankful, God, that we have the testimony of Joseph who said to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. God, I'm thankful that we have the testimony of countless other saints through the ages who clung to your word and exclaimed together, great is thy faithfulness. Oh God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Great is thy faithfulness, God. Great is your faithfulness. Lord, thank you for the body. Thank you for gifting us with each other. Thank you, God, for your word. And I pray today, God, that you would uh, strengthen us uh, to find our hope and live with joyful hope and expectation like Paul did, that we will not be ashamed. We will not be ashamed. That you will be exalted, whether by life or by death, because for to to live is Christ and to die is gain. We pray this all together in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at